What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Parker said, sometimes with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. Welcome to another Breakfast.com podcast. Today's guest is Brian O'Malley. Hello, Brian. Hi, how are you doing? I'm all right, I'm all right. The more, well, obser- the most, more observant listeners may well know Brian's name connected to the Liam Cunningham film, Let Us Pray, from what was that, 2014? Yeah, yeah, it came out officially 2015, but the festival circuit was 2014, yeah. yeah. And you're back now with a new film called The Lodges. That's right. A very different piece. Indeed. So in, in, with that in mind, do you want to give us a brief synopsis as to what The Lodges is? Yeah, so The Lodges is very much in the vein of a classical period gothic ghost story. Uh, and it's about t- uh, two twins who pretty much within the first couple of minutes of the film turn 18 and uh, with that comes a a, um, a pressing on them, an ancestral pressing on them to follow through on something that they're not entirely comfortable with. And uh, they live in this big old dilapidated, crumbling um, mansion. Uh, and they live there under three rules, which are uh, um, they must be in bed by midnight's bell. They uh, can never leave each other all alone and they can never let a stranger across the threshold. And if they break any of those three rules, they'll suffer the wrath of whatever it is that inhabits the space beneath their house. And is that, is that, is that who we're calling the lodgers? So, yeah, this is a kind of a misconception. People think the lodgers are the, are the uh, entity that inhabits the house, but the, the, a lodger is someone who lives in someone else's house under their rules. So mm. the twins are the lodgers. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's not the ghosts, and this is a misconception. Uh, uh, so it's a very clever sort of play on that word by the writer. Not no, the, the, but it's more interesting when you realise the lodgers are the living twins, you know. Indeed, indeed. So, yeah. so yeah, you, you directed this, and it was it was written by uh, David Turpin. David uh, Turpin, that's right. Yeah. So, so from your from uh, at what point in the script's development did did you become involved in the film? Yeah, so David Turpin is a sort of a minor left to centre pop star in Ireland. Is he really? Yeah, well, I say pop star. You know, indie pop centric musician uh, if you look up the late david turpin you'll find music videos with him in it okay 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 yeah, he's also a professor of gothic english literature now a doctor at the time he was only a mere professor 
and uh, and he's also very young. He's in his early thirties. So he had been borrowing equipment from the producers of the film, Taylor Films, to make music videos because he was in college with them. And he eventually says, "Look, I feel I owe you something for for the help you've given me. Can I write something for you?" And he'd never written anything before. Hmm. And they said, "We'd love a ghost story." So a week later, he came back with the premise for the Lodgers, uh, with everything worked out, the rules, everything. <laughs> And uh, they loved it and they submitted it to the Irish Film Board who gave it development funding. So that was the first screenplay he ever wrote. Wow. And then I was brought on board, I would say maybe a year to a year and a half into that process. So the script was very much fully formed. Um, and the script I read was in very, very good shape. Uh, uh, however, the ending of it um, was very, very different to what you've seen in the film. And I worked with David through a number of endings until we found one that Felt we felt kind of um, represented where the film was had had been leading, and there were a number of other things in a practical things like where I realised certain things were going to be too expensive, etc. But uh, I would say the uh, for the most part the the the, the script uh, was in very good shape by the time I came on board. So just just to give um, sort of aspiring writers an idea of what. Of what what it's what it's like from your point of view to come to a script. I'm guessing coldish, you know, yeah. and, you, and you're reading it with the view that, and obviously you want. I think I think everybody wants to like everything, but you can't. Yeah. Obviously, the world, the time's not. There's not enough time in the world. So, yeah. what was it when you were reading the Lodgers that thought to you, "This is this is what what appealed to you most about yeah. it?" Okay, yeah. Well, listen. After I did Let Us Pray, because Let Us Pray was kind of balls to the wall horror. Mm. And I was getting offered a lot of very violent horror, gore horror movies. And I'm actually not, whilst I love, I don't have a problem with violence in film. I'm not a fan of, um, a, 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 I don't like what they call gore porn, you know, that type of heavy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't enjoy that as a, as a viewer. And I'm also not a fan of gore and horror for the sake of, of, for the, you know, for its sake alone. I only like it if it's part of the story. Mm-hmm. And even, in Let Us Pray, actually, whenever there's violence in it, whilst it was very, very brutal, in most instances, it was quite brief as well, you know. Um, mm. But So I was getting offered a lot of that type of stuff, and I was conscious that if I did it, whilst uh, everything about Let Us Pray does represent me, I knew if I did another movie that was um, in the realms of heavily violent horror movie, I, I would become that director. And I didn't want to become that director specifically because my tastes in cinema are vast. Horror yeah. is one of the things I like. I'm, I would say I'm an even greater fan of science fiction. Okay. Uh, I also love westerns. I love espionage thrillers. I have a very, very broad taste in genre. <clears throat> so I was conscious that my next movie had to follow through on having had, I suppose, a minor hit horror movie. Mm-hmm. I had to follow through on that and not go off and do a kitchen sink drama. But I wanted to do something that <laughs> showed I had broader tastes and, for, and wider abilities. Mm. So uh, I was uh, approached by the producers, Taylor Films. I said, we have this ghost story. They'd seen Let Us Pray in Montreal at a festival and the crowd had gone mental. It was probably the most sort of raucous screening there had been of the film. And they, they were looking for, obviously, an Irish director because in Ireland, the Irish director, you can, you can get um, better funding from the film board if you're the local director. Okay. So they asked to read it. And what they didn't know is my... <coughs> My favourite subgenre of horror is gothic period ghost stories. Um, so uh, the Innocence, the Deborah Kerr film, uh, is yeah. one of 
favourite of all time. And I saw that film in my early 20s. And the moment I saw it, I thought, God, I would love one day to have the opportunity to direct a gothic period ghost story. And then you had the likes of the others, you know, many, many decades later. But it's not, it's, it's a genre that's not overdone, probably because it's expensive, you know, mm. difficult to pull off. So when I was told, well, this is a gothic period ghost story, obviously it piqued my interest. But what <laughs> made me want to direct it was, firstly, within the first page, I could tell it was beautifully written. And I went, okay, so this guy really knows how to write. But there's an exchange in the script, which I think was about 15 pages in, and it's a scene in the film where Rachel has left the post office and she's walking back through the forest and she's opening the letter and Sean stops her and uh, he asks her if she's okay. And she's quite rude to him in the forest. Mm. And she looks down at his leg and says, you won't follow me all the way home limping like that, will you? And he says, I would if you asked me to. And I thought that was such a beautifully poetic exchange uh, that I thought, oh, oh well, there, I, there, I think there is there really is something beautiful going on in this film. It won't just be a ghost story. And it was actually from that scene onwards that I kind of thought this really could be something I could really be into. And do you, and do you know what? That's kind of, I mean, it's, it's interesting that, that that got you in the read because I, I feel like that got me in the watch. Yeah, okay, that's great. Yeah. Because because you're kind of, you're building your mind up as to what this film is because you're going, okay, period. It's, there's obviously some presence. There's, it's scaring him. And then you get this, this this lovely moment, which is just all about character, isn't it? It's yeah, totally, yeah. Uh, and now that's really what drew me in. I thought, okay, there's going to be opportunities in this to do more, to do something different to Let Us Pray, which there was obviously. And uh, uh, and from then on, I was kind of hooked on it from that page onward. I do uh, I do an offshoot to Britflix. It's still on the Britflix platform, but called Five Great British Horror Films, and uh, The Innocents has appeared in People's Five. Mm, on, a few, on a few occasions. Yeah, I love, like for me, it's the great uh, period ghost story uh, in film. I'm glad you said it because it, it's kind of it was the, when I was watching your film, I was thinking, my God, this is the, the, the pun intended. This is the spirit of the innocence if ever there was a film. Well, yeah, I, I remember when I read the script, I thought, I thought to myself, in in some ways, obviously, the conclusion of the innocence, you know, uh, you know, was very didn't lend itself to further stories mm. of those characters but I felt in some way the Lodgers felt like it could be in some alternate sort of timeline mm. a continuation of that story in some strange way um, how, and how did you how did you find the uh, the conversation when I mean like you say if it's his first screenplay and your, your first time working together how did you how did you make that work in terms obviously it did work you've made a film but in those initial sort of Interactions. How did you make that process work for the period? Yeah, I am. Um, that's interesting. I never really kind of thought about that till this moment. Um, so, well, I had done some writing myself. So, uh, and I, whilst I don't consider myself a writer, I do understand the process is very difficult, and you get notes, and and it's not easy. People think it's easy to fix them, and it's not. <laughs> and often people comment on scripts in ways that are un unhelpful and don't offer you any solutions. Uh, and people, uh, it's funny because people feel they have, they're entitled to, to comment on the script, entitled to comment on the edit, but they never have an opinion while you're filming, you know. Uh, so, um, so I was very. Um, that's just that's a really interesting observation, that yeah. It's because they can go, I wouldn't do that. But when you're filming, the clock's ticking and the money's being spent. So nobody get on a low budget film. Nobody gets in your way. You just do ah. it. They have an opinion when it's 
when when it's only words on a page and then, and then in an edit room, everybody everybody has an opinion then, you know. So <laughs> I was aware of that sort of um, that I wasn't going to, you know, I, I have had that respect for for the writing process. That when it came to working with David, uh, I understood that he was the he was the storyteller. I was going to be the person who, who you know, uh, brought it to the screen. But it was his story. So if I had any issues or any questions, he was always going to be the person with the answer. Uh, and I could offer suggestions, uh, which he would use, but he would always have the answer. So we had a very positive working relationship. I, um, uh, I would say, you know, say the ending, for example, I wanted something more... Uh, surprising and something that was kind of visually lent itself to sort of having a greater screen presence and we pushed and pushed it and we went so far it was impossible to make it was too expensive mm. we can talk about that i suppose as we progress but we ended up where we were with the inverted house which is a brilliant invention from 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 david so it was a very positive relationship i i like david a lot so that helps you know mm. uh, i you know i have worked with writers who i i, I didn't particularly like and uh uh, I didn't have the same great experience, but it was a very positive one. I found it quite easy because I liked them and uh, I respected the film and I was I was trying to make the film he wrote. I wasn't trying to make a different film. I think that's but, interesting for that, that, even though it's a, a simple thing to observe, you know, that because you liked him. And I think that's 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 something that, while I've not yet made a feature film yet, the, the things I've been developing, things have gone best when when you get on. It isn't necessarily always about... <laughs> just simply having the skills to do something, is it? Yeah, but also another thing that I've kind of skill I've learned as a director is it's important to be able to identify when somebody's smarter than you. <laughs> uh, no, and I mean that sincerely. Yeah. Uh, so David is always the smartest person in the room. So when he has a view on something, you listen to him, because and if you don't listen to him, you're not being very, being very clever, you know? Hmm. So, uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean that I, I always agreed with him or that, his suggestion was going to answer what I needed answered, but it was always valid what he said. I always took it on board, absor absorbed it, and sometimes I would come back and say, "Actually, I think we need to do this instead." But um, uh, I always, I always took anything he said with. Uh, Interesting. I mean, it's it's going to. Say, I don't want to make you blush, but in terms of what I'm going to compare that to, it's it's. I remember an interview with uh, Sidney Lumet saying more or less the same thing. It's like. It's like I'm working with the writer to tell their story, not getting the writer to work with me to direct a film. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, and there are directors who work that way, and they and you know, and they're brilliant. But um, uh, that's not how I worked on this. You know. Mm. Now you you mentioned about period being a challenge financially, which is why maybe the the Gothic period doesn't get made as much as it does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what what were what were for you were the main challenges in terms of what was important visually for you to be able to capture off the screenplay that that you needed in the production values of what you got on screen? Yeah, well, we needed the house to have it was a house mainly, mm. and it needed to be have a have a presence. It needed to be a, a space that the the viewers felt was a presence and a character in the film. Uh, and also, it, it as the script read, it was it was in a state of Decay. It was mm. damp. It was falling apart, etc. Uh, so you're trying to find. You're you're going. And with that, you know it, that conjures up images in your mind. You know, and if you don't find a space that's already you know within the realms of that, then you're into a 
great costs to make it look that way, you know. Mm. So um, we looked at a lot of houses around the country, and I suppose historically in Ireland, a very quick sort of uh, backdrop is that um, uh, during the time of Cromwell, he would basically steal land from the Irish, and he would use that land to pay his 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 uh, his soldiers. And the, the, the lesser soldiers would then sell their little piece of land to the sergeants. And the sergeants who had more money ended up with these vast pieces of land in Ireland. Mm. And they would rent that land back to the Irish people who had originally owned it. And it became so wealthy, they used to build these colossal houses that were monuments to their wealth. Uh, and we had 6,000 of these big houses, as they became known in Ireland, all over Ireland. And then, uh, yeah, and then after uh, the uh, War of Independence, as a kind of act of, you know, a re, you know, rebellion, I suppose, against the British, most of them were burnt to the ground, which is kind of tragic, really, you know. So there's only 600 of those houses left in Ireland, and they have various various states of, um, they're in various states of preservation, I suppose. Some of them have no roofs or windows, and they're shells. Uh, others, you know, if you they're in, have been restored to such a degree that you couldn't go in there and do anything with them. Uh, like, you know, make them look like they're decayed or anything. You have to, you know, they would look brand new. Mm. So it was difficult to find a house that was safe, but also looked like it was kind of starting to to to, to, to crumble to the ground. And uh, one of the producers mentioned Loftus Hall, which I wasn't aware of, but it's considered the most haunted house in Ireland. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So we took a visit to it, and as we drove over the crest of the hill and looked out onto Hook Head, which is where it is, and the, if you've ever heard the term by hook or by crook. I have, that, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's the reference to Hookhead, um, and the house sits on it like a monolith because Hookhead's actually barren because it's a peninsula, mm. and the house sits on it like a, mon- a monolith, and it's really ominous. Um, and then when you walk inside the front door of the house, it's literally like stepping backwards through time because it hasn't changed. So you actually feel like you've walked into a time capsule. And other than sockets on the walls and fire uh, fire alarms and things like that, uh, there's very little to tell you that time has passed inside this house and um, so it was kind of remarkable in that it was in it kind of felt like it it hadn't changed nothing in there had changed in several hundred years and uh, the roof had been kind of re- restored so whilst the house was in a, it was in, is in a, is a state of preserved decay is how I would describe it yeah uh, it was usable so we kind of had a house that already looked an awful lot like what we needed it to look like. Uh, and it was relatively safe to go in there and shoot. And then our production designer, Joe Fallover, he then uh, brought in a lot of the, the, the props that you see in it, uh, uh, the dining table, the fireplaces, the, the clocks, the broken chandeliers. All, all the rooms were then dressed and made to, to give in that sense of kind of a lived-in decay. Uh, and... Uh, Due to the generosity of the owner of the house and Joe Fowler, Fallover's brilliant use of a very tiny budget, we managed to create a house that appears, that makes our film look like we had a massive budget. Mm. But we really did have a very, very tiny budget. Uh, I can't emphasize that enough. Like, this was a very, very low budget film. Mm. It's only slightly more than Let Us Pray, which cost 900 grand, you know. So, um, did, you, so did, you, did you, so everything I'm seeing interior, that's shot on location in the building? There, there's no sets in that film. The only wow, that's amazing. Set in the film, yeah. It's not even a set, but it, it is sort of a set. Is the bathroom in the house? Yeah. Was, was a was dressed into a room, so that wasn't a bathroom. We brought in the bath. We put up the bit of tiles on the wall, 
but it's still a real room in the house, but it wasn't a bathroom. And that's it. Everything else in the house is, is real. And the village is completely real as well. So the village um, was a town called Clongeen in Wexford. And they happened to have this one building that, that hadn't been touched and still had its interior intact. And you'll notice in the film, there's only one wide shot of the village, uh, which is when we first introduced it. And uh, it looks like it's a village in the middle of nowhere, but we actually painted out a housing estate full of white houses in the background. Did you really? Yeah. And that's all we could afford to do was that one shot. And that's why in the rest of the movie, we always shoot into that building because if you spun the camera either direction, you'd realize that you weren't in a period. Well, the the, the camera trick works lovely because I I felt like I'd been thrown back in time. And even. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, good, good. And actually, we got lucky because we came across the house and then managed to track down the owner, open the door. And we walked in the door and the door had been shut about 20 years ago, but it had been a a bar and a new a, a news a grocer shop and hadn't been touched since the early 19, uh, 20th century wow. uh, so we now we redressed it and propped it but actually what you see in the film is what the shop looked like we didn't paint it or anything you know? now we've talked about we've talked about the direct references in terms of um the, the genre of the gothic ghost story but yeah. in terms of the look and feel i mean it's it is it's a beautiful sumptuous looking film and and belies your uh your budgetary restraints. So, so what 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 incense was you, was your conversations with your cinematographer Richard Kendrick about yes. about how you wanted this to look? Yeah. Okay. So I think when you're making a film, a, horror, a genre movie, mm. I feel it's quite okay. I'll step back slightly further. If you pick out the great genre movies, like the great horrors, the great science fiction. So let's say we take The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. Or we take 2001 A Space Odyssey, okay? Mm-hmm. They weren't made by horror director or sci-fi director. They were made by great directors. True. So, so I've always felt that the great genre movies uh, were being made by directors who weren't necessarily being directly influenced by that genre. They're being influenced elsewhere. So I always felt when you're making a movie, uh, a genre movie, if your only reference is other genre movies, well then you're going to make something that is very much a repeat of that. Uh, so it's important to try and find a reference outside the world of genre that you can that can inform your film and give it something slightly different. So mm-hmm. so I suppose the genre reference for it were the the innocence. Uh, and then the other genre reference was um uh The Hunger, Tony Scott's film. Okay. Yeah. Uh, because it it's in some ways similar in that it's two people who, who who live inside this house it is contained life inside this mm-hmm. house and they're all they are they're always together um uh, and there's a strange sexual sort of relationship going on there and i uh so that i took quite a lot of reference from that a lot of shooting into mirrors etc in that film uh, and the, the color palette but the then the, the ref, third reference of the film which was outside genre was the duke of burgundy um, I don't know if you've seen that film, the Peter the, the Peter Strickland film, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think that's a masterpiece, and it, there's a very strange atmosphere of that film, which is in a great part of that was down to the use of sound, uh, but it was also, you know, tonally in relation to how it was shot, etc. So I basically showed those three films to the director of photography and the production designer, uh, and I said, this effectively, I want to take these three films and I want to put them together, and that's the kind of atmosphere I want to create. So the the innocence is a 
you know, unusual actually, uh, anamorphic black and white, which is not a very common. Usually when films were shot in anamorphic, they were in color. So okay. it's unusual to see it in black and white. I never uh, knew. I never knew that. <laughs> yeah, it's just a, I think because you had, if you had the money for anamorphic, you had the money for color film. Oh, know? I see. Okay, okay. Uh, so it's quite unusual to see black and white anamorphic movies, and they look kind of amazing. So the the DP really was taken aback by this film, and he loved the the, the sweeping camera moves and uh, the way. They use depth because the lenses fall off out of focus quite quickly and stuff. So, uh, so that was that was great. And then, as I mentioned, the shooting into mirrors in the uh, in the the hunger and just the color palette of it, etc. So we kind of all watched them and we all chatted about the things we liked about them. And interestingly enough, the production designer's favorite of the three was the Duke of Burgundy, and uh, and that informed us really. And we shot so we shot the film on, on anamorphic lenses, uh, but we use very inexpensive ones. And actually, the cheaper anamorphic lenses, because uh, the manufacturing process with them is is you know greatly uh, is is less precise. They have aberrations in them. They're, they're basically not as good as expensive anamorphic lenses. And what they do is, when you're shooting on a digital format, which is perfect, they bring an analog quality into it because they bring in perfections into the image. So you'll notice at the edge of the frame, there's blurring and stuff like that. Uh, so, um, so we, we did that and that brought a texture to the, to the, to the image, uh, which pulled it away from that very, um, perfect digital, uh, feel. So that lends quite heavily towards creating the, uh, texture of the film, which makes the film, I think the film already feels kind of old. I like that. I like that description. Yeah, you, you, you're right. It's sort of a way. A perfect digital is is often a problem, isn't it? I mean, I know, yeah, I know it's, the period film because yeah. you're of it because you're you're going look at this magnificent high definition image. Uh, yeah, I'm supposed to believe I'm in the 1800s and the 1900s. You know, which was obviously Kubrick when he did Barry Lyndon was doing his candle test, wasn't yeah. it, to, to try and shoot in only candlelight? Yes, <laughs> so he would have loved. I'm convinced he would have loved digital because he could have shot with a match. Yeah, yeah, you know, tell yeah, you know. I've been I've interviewed uh, Larry Smith. He said, yeah, he said he would he would have stretched it to its absolute limits. Yeah, he would have. And actually, it's interesting because they're releasing that 2001 restored 2001 Space Odyssey, mm. and uh, um, based on what I've read about Kubrick, I think uh, he apparently hated film weave and and scratches and all that stuff. Uh, and I can't help but think if he was alive, he would have wanted it restored with all the blemishes removed, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and all the... No, totally. totally. Now, uh, the 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 main characters, the twi- the twins, uh, are two are, are, are two opposing characters. Even though they know they know what their purpose is, and they know what's going to happen. Um, he is the one that seems like the most submissive to the power that mm. keeps them as lodgers, and she is the more. Sort of, she's the she's the character with agency, isn't she? She's the one. Although yeah. he has his own agency in a different way. Come, 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 come. The points in the story, but her hers is the one that's. I guess she's the audience, isn't she? She's the one that would not. Yeah. If it was you and me in there, we'd do what she's just doing. Yeah. So but it's interesting. Sorry, go on. Could you finish what you were going to say? I was just going to say. I mean, it's just that the idea of. Obviously, they both know the same information, but they're both acting very differently. You know, they're was it eleven minutes a difference in age, so yeah. it's like. They they know exactly the same thing, but they both yeah. have, have decided at their eighteenth birthday to be a very, or have grown to be very different people. Yeah, it's funny because um, my mother's a twin, and mm. I actually don't know if she's the elder twin. Funny enough, I must ask her. Mm. But I know quite a few twins, and and uh, there, it, it is very common in twins that the one who's born first, even though it's usually only minutes. T- 
takes on the role of the older child. That's right. that's pretty common. Uh, and often you'll see with the older twin that they're more they, in youth, they can be more responsible than the younger one, as though there is an actual age gap of several years between them. That's interesting. So, uh, so in many respects, she's the she's she's the more mature of the two. However, what's happening there with him that I think is so interesting about him and Bill plays so well is he's just really terrified. He's not a bad person. Mm. He's brought up to believe this is if you don't do this, like things will not be good for you. So he everything he's enacting isn't out of a desire to follow through on this ancestral curse. It's, he's just terrified of what will happen if he doesn't. And that actually probably for the, you know, since he witnessed uh, what happened to his parents has been eating away at him and has altered his mind and, and, and he's become sort of mentally damaged, if you like. Well, it's almost like the male-female thing, isn't it? Like the male tends to grow less, slower than the female and she's sort of come of age before he has. He's still, yeah, he's still sure. behaving like the child, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll tell you what else is going on here. And this is kind of, I suppose, obvious is. So the film is set in 1920. Yeah. You can work that out based on the gravestones. It's, it's all in there, right? Mm. So it's 1920. And that's two years before Ireland uh, gained independence. It was, yeah. So, so, what you're, so the film takes place at a point in Irish history when Ireland is on the cusp of freedom from the people who had uh, uh, imposed their rules on them for the last hundreds for hundreds of years okay so she represents that because she's now on the cusp of of a uh well she sees that that the decision she now makes will it will determine whether she lives by the rules of these people or by her own rules so she very much represents the change that's happening in ireland at that point uh, so I suppose it's it's appropriate that it should be the woman, you know, who plays that character. You, you I mean, you say you say it's obvious, but I'm, I'm not. I, I mean, it's in there because I was going to ask you about that. I thought I thought the play on on, but, but what is essentially a big story about a haunted house, and yet you manage to still give us the texture of um, the civil unrest, and like you say, the brink of where change is going to come. So this, this is after 1916, obviously a, yeah. an important year. In yeah. terms of Irish history, um, with the Easter Uprising, is that right? Easter Rising, yeah. Easter yeah. Rising, so, what's going on in there is Sean has come back from the First World War. Mm. So what I suppose outside Ireland people wouldn't be aware of is that because the First World War happened when Ireland was still under British rule, Irish men were brought to fight for the British in the First World War, mm. so, even though they weren't British. Okay, but they, they, you know, they, they, they lived under British rule. So what happened tragically was when a lot of these men came back to Ireland, they were treated as pariahs by their, by the, in the towns they lived in. And they often lived out the rest of their lives as outsiders in their own towns. It was very tragic. Uh, so you're seeing that play out in the film. So he's, he's, he's an outsider in his own country and she is too because, it, um, she represents, in many ways, those we discussed the big houses. Mm. So those the people who own the big houses were were in not in all cases, but in many cases around Ireland were seen as they represented the oppressor. Okay, so they were the landlord. No, no, yeah, yeah, because that makes sense. That makes sense. And that wasn't always the case. Some of them really looked after the local communities, you know. Mm. But in many instances, they were seen as the landlords, and they had kind of. That they were living off the off the people, so there was that natural suspicion of the people in the big house, and they actually used to pay the local priest, 
priest to tell stories of things in the house, such as the devil played cards there, etc. <laughs> uh, to make the low, it was kind of like uh, house insurance, you know. So if you made the locals afraid of the house, they wouldn't try and break into it and rob you. So that's where a lot of those stories come from in Ireland about the big house, etc. And that's where historically the fear and the suspicion of the big house comes from. So he represents someone who's back who, who who's no longer seen as uh, belonging to the country he was born in, mm. and she is also represents a part of society who is seen as not belonging in the country she was born in. So they're both outsiders in their own in their own. Uh, no, no, and I think between between they're you, all, they're both they're both lodgers, if you like. like yeah, 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 yeah. No, so, yeah, and I think so. between you and David, then I think that it's it's so wonderfully handled because it would have been it would have been it would have been so easy just to sort of spit exposition at us every minute of the film, you know, to make sure we knew. And I think yeah. you, kind of, you kind of trusted us to find this and find what we want as well. Cause you, yeah. you can watch this. I think, you, I think it's safe to say you could watch this on the surface level and go, it's about two people in a, in, who have come of age and now some supernatural force is going to do this or this or this. And, and, you know, and they're near a little village and there's a bit of tension, but you don't need to be invested so much in that. But equally, it grounds itself in that and that adds that adds a sort of absolute layer of, of detail and, and uh, authenticity, I think, to the to where, yeah, where. The, the 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 mechanisms of the genre are really they're really just a vehicle to kind of. Uh, explore these other themes, and as we were discussing before, you, before this started, the how some of the horror reviews have criticised it for not being horror enough. Mm. Uh, um, and I suppose we can get into how that was wholly intentional, but it, it's a shame that they haven't identified in t- at times that the film is about more than that. The, the horror side of it is really just uh, there to tell this. I suppose other story, you know. No, I mean, and we can we can just we can just finish on that point. It's like there is I cover Fright Fest every year, and I get to see a lot of amazing, innovative films. But I also get to see a lot of films made by horror fans that just echo horror films, yeah, and do nothing in terms of a storytelling or b cinema, and yeah, and you kind of left with nothing other than well, that was a good special effects. Well. Good special effects you can see in adverts. You know, it's like it's it's not it's yeah. not it's not a read. I've never watched a film for special effects since since I was about eleven. You know, and, yeah, and, then, it, yeah. and then it was only like a rites of passage. And I just find I find it interesting that, that I mean, I always think now the way the way the genres evolved, and it's and for me, Fright Fest is a good example because it used to be the home of horror, and now it builds itself as the dark heart of cinema, which I think is a much better description. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Because obviously, well, your, your film what... fits in, doesn't it? Antichrist fits in. So does Evil Dead Seventeen. You know, it's yeah, like... of course. <laughs> but it's back to what I said that often you ask people their favorite horror movie of all time. So me, for me, the great horror of all time is The Shining. Mm. And again, Kubrick, who also made Two Thousand One, of course, the other great sci-fi. But uh, they're not made by horror nuts. They're made by filmmakers. And so for me, the most interesting genre is by people who are, who are interested in cinema as opposed to specifically genre. Um, yeah. Brian, Brian De Palma with uh, Carrie. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so with the lodgers, um, my interest in it was the ghost story was, was part, partly what interests me, but it was also the themes, the whole idea that if you repress something long enough, it can actually manifest into something that, that can destroy your life, you know, uh, which is 
true. That's not it's that's not a genre thing. That's just, that's life, you know. And that's what the film's exploring, uh, and it does it through the ghost story. No, uh, no. So I, I mentioned earlier, I had already made a balls to the wall horror, and I wanted to make something very, very deliberately elegant, beautiful mm. gothic ghost story. Um, and uh, horror fans, uh, I suppose, if you're after blood and guts, that's not in it, you know. No, no, no. But the, uh, the 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 gothic horror is an excellent gothic horror story. And I guess we should we should say, how can people see the film? Uh, well, in the UK, it's out in June, I believe. Uh, you 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 managed to see a screener in mm. that way. I don't know the date. Sometime in mid to early June. So that'll be a DVD release. Yeah. And iTunes. Uh, and it came out in the States in February uh, on VOD, etc. And there's a Blu-ray that just came out there. Mm. So if you want a Blu-ray of it, a HD, physical HD, you got to get the region-free one from the States. If you want uh, a local uh, physical copy, it's a DVD. Um, or you can get a HD version off iTunes, etc. Well, I'll put in the, in the show notes the, the actual release dates and stuff. Right. So people can and a link and whatever. But look, Brian, thank you very much for your time. The BritFlix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. The music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina.